This week's TribCast is sponsored by Workify. Workify is an employee survey and feedback software that helps companies grow their people and drive their culture. Learn more at getworkify.com. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for December 16th, 2020, our second to last Tribcast of the year. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics of the Texas Tribune. This week I am joined by uh, Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. I almost forgot your title there for a second. I thought you almost forgot my name. Howdy. (laughs) (laughs) Politics reporter uh, Alex Samuels. Howdy again. And reporter Karen Brooks. Hi there. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, This week um, has been a big week. A lot of um, kind of momentous occasions for Texas and the country. Um, The one I want to kind of start out with first is the arrival of vaccines in the state. Um, We saw shipments coming, um, you know, from the federal government's allotment to various cities across the state. Karen, you've been watching uh, this uh, for the Tribune. What's happening so far? Who's getting these vaccines? How many do we see? What's the deal here? So this week, um, we're getting about 225,000 doses shipped to 110 sites across the state. Um, There were four on the first day, Austin, Houston, um, San Antonio, and Dallas. Um, And then um, another, I think, 19 came in yesterday. And then for the rest of the week, they're going to give the, uh, you know, the the rest of the 87 uh, sites will get theirs shipped and landed. And and we're talking about towns and cities all over the state, really, from, you know, you know, giant Houston to, you know, Amarillo to El Paso and, and uh, Laredo and, and Corpus Christi and, you know, um, San Angelo and, and Central Texas and, and just all over the state. They're landing everywhere. And um, there's already hundreds of people being vaccinated, hundreds of healthcare workers, frontline workers, and uh, getting their first dose and, um, and uh, planning for their second dose in the first week of January. Um, Later this week, we'll, uh, we're expecting another list to come out for who will get the next shipment, which is set to arrive next week. Can you walk oh. four million doses by the end of the year? Yep. Great. Can you walk us a little bit through the strategy? You know, four million doses is a lot. Um, it's definitely not enough to, you know, end this pandemic. Though, what's the the strategy for kind of dispersing this out in the most effective way? So the 1.4 million doses is um, is going to be um, allocated on a tier system, and not to get too technical in the weeds on it. Um, really, what they're 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 prioritizing healthcare workers, um, people who are in the very front lines and who are needed to keep the healthcare system going. It's not some kind of reward, or you know, it's not some acknowledgement that there's no other people at risk. It's it's both the idea that they are. Uh, at risk and that they are essential and also that without them there'd be nobody to take care of the rest of us who haven't gotten the vaccine yet. So they are on the front lines. There's long-term care facilities that will be uh, getting theirs in this first round. Um, 
you know, well, so first round and first tier aren't necessarily the same thing, right? There's a lot of people in the first tier. The first round may or may not cover them all. You know, there's there, there's more coming. Um, I don't have a lot of specifics on that. I don't know if anybody does really, but the pharmacies will disperse the uh, you know the vaccines to the long-term care facilities, nursing home residents, and that kind of thing when that time comes. Um, and then they'll just go on down the list. You know, they they've got they've got lots of uh, they've got lots of decisions yet to make. There's a few groups that um, we haven't really seen on any definitive list yet. Um, and, of course, everybody wants it. Or, I mean, not everybody, but, get it, but that's another issue. But, you know, um, yeah. sure. Sure. So, so, so you said the healthcare workers being kind of the first step here. Do we know who will be next on that list um, or – or, or where we'll kind of go once we get past that that first what you kind of group that you described? Yeah, long-term care facilities are going to be next. Then you've got bigger and bigger uh, groups coming. You know, you've got um, kind of going to look over my list here because it's kind of actually kind of a chunky list, if that makes sense. But, um, you know, showing up on that list are going to be school nurses and, uh, and uh, teachers are coming up a little bit later on, although I haven't seen anything definitive on them. Um, there's a lot of people asking about the prison, uh, the prison system, because not just the inmates, but also the, um, but also the, you know, the, the staffers who, um, you know, who are, who are around those and in the same conditions every day. And, um, you know, we don't really have a, uh, we don't really have a, um, a definitive schedule just yet, but we do have some idea of who's going to come next. Um, and if I can find a list, I'll. Get it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, this is, you know, what Governor Abbott has been working towards here, you know, trying to kind of get us to this point. Um, I've been a little bit surprised to not see him kind of be out there touting this very much. Is it, do you think it's kind of trying to tamper expectations for, for what this initial rollout will, will mean for the pandemic? Well, you kind of have a mixed message here, uh, you know, necessarily. I'm not, you know, putting that on the governor, but... He's got to tell everybody we're at the worst point in the pandemic right now. We're at July levels of spread and hospitalizations and infection rates and deaths. But there's hope out there. And you don't want people to get so hopeful that they ignore the current danger uh, or so worried about the current danger that they're no longer hopeful. It's a, it's a tough balancing act. The fact is that it's going to take months to get vaccinations for everybody who wants the vaccinations. And then we get into the issue of whether everybody, um, whether we've got enough people vaccinated. Um, you've got a bunch of logistical stuff as Karen's going through, you know, you've got um, this sort of triage system on who gets this first and, and, you know, where do we really need the vaccine? There's a geographic version of this, you know, this is going to go first to cities and it's going to take a while to get into rural Texas. Rural Texas is where, some of the worst spread and worst experience right now with coronavirus is. So, you know, if you're the governor or anybody else, you know, up there in management somewhere, you've got to figure out a way to temper what you're saying to say, you know, it's not that things are terrible and there's no hope. Things are terrible and there is hope, but it's going to be a while. Sure. It, it might get bad before, or it might get worse before it gets better. Right. You know, the 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 White House Coronavirus Task Force puts out a, a weekly kind of advisory to all the different states that um, eventually gets public and we get a chance to look at it too. And, and the most recent one that has been made public, I think maybe there's one that hasn't 
gone out yet to to the broad people, but had this these two sentences that really stood out to me. It said, the current vaccine implementation will not substantially reduce viral spread, hospitalizations, or fatalities until the 100 million Americans with comorbidities can be fully immunized, which will take until late spring. Behavioral change and aggressive mitigation policies are the only widespread spread prevention tools that we have to address this winter surge. Texas, is, of course, you know, has has been seeing its numbers go up, but we we haven't necessarily seen much movement in the direction of kind of increasing the um, the restrictions. Um, have have we seen any indication from you know local authorities, from go- the governor, or anything like that, that 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 might change, or do do we feel like we're kind of on the path we're on until until this vi- vaccine kicks in? You know, I think we're kind of on the path we're on. There's a lot of places where this is really not going well. Uh, We are right at the point where, you know, we've seen probably whatever Thanksgiving swell we're going to see. We're heading into the Christmas holidays, Passover, New Year's, all of that stuff. And those are typically big gathering times. And, you know, one of the reasons why you temper your message at the top is you don't want people to start gathering and spreading this disease even further than it's spreading or faster than it's spreading now while we're waiting for vaccines. Karen, so, I mean, one of the big challenges that the governor and the the health authorities across the state are going to have to deal with is, as you mentioned earlier, um, convincing people that they should take this vaccine. Uh, Health health officials, you know, or, you know, frontline medical workers seem like a fairly easy group to convince, given the fact that they've seen kind of the worst of this virus. And also because presumably they have the medical training to know, you know, how vaccines are safe and and all that kind of thing. But, you know, what kind of work is ahead of us from the state in terms of convincing kind of the general public to, to take this vaccine? Well, you know, they're already they've already started the the ad campaigns on national and 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 or public messaging campaigns um, on a national and, and local level too. You know, you've got um, we've kind of been kind of looking at it in, in three camps. Well, everybody's going to have their own opinion, but you know, you've you've got the the traditional you know anti-vax um, crowd, which is a small small percentage. You know, um, I was recently on a call um, where the uh, one of the CDC. Um, vaccination um, committee members said that 90% of parents get their kids vaccinated all ready to go before school, which is a big number. Um, and but you just don't hear them. So, so you know the one or two percent that's uh, that are solidly anti-vax, and then you've got the people in the middle who are just kind of undecided and stuck. You know, don't really know what to do. That's kind of how she broke it down. And so you've got that that small percentage of people that are just philosophically against vaccinations, and then you've got the communities of color, um, black communities, Hispanic, indigenous, others who um, have some very real historical, you know, um, context to to overcome and being able to trust the government um, and government medical, um, you know, experiments, if you will, trials, tests, um, and that kind of thing, and. And then there's just the general kind of divisiveness and mistrust of the government coming in and the government going out um, and the surprise that the vaccine came so quickly, which, you know, there's a lot of really good science out there to uh, to explain why it came so quickly and uh, and uh, why it works the way it does. And, and, and things like the fact that the vaccine is not a live vaccine, so it's physically 
biologically incapable of giving you the virus. That's scientific. Um, I heard that, you know, I was, I learned that, I mean, I was, I was, we were talking about that this week on this call with the CDC and FDA people. So, so there's, but that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of science and a lot of history and a lot of culture and a lot of politics to try to jump over um, before, you know, or and during the time they're actually dealing with logistics that Ross mentioned. So it's a big, it's a big challenge. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that really stands out to me is also just communities that are maybe more transient um, or, you know, given that this is a shot that you need to take twice, what I believe, three weeks apart um, and possibly the government will want to kind of keep in touch with you and keep track of you um, in between those times to make sure that you get your booster shot. I also wonder about the, you know, the undocumented community. We have a very large population in Texas where there might be some hesitancy, you know, especially given, you know, some of the, the feelings around immigration among the federal government and the state government right now. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is going to have to be a lot of convincing of, you know, trust us. This is this is safe. This is this is for the good of you and for, you know, the the whole of the population to to take this vaccine. Yeah, it's the biggest, it's the biggest vaccination program in the history of the nation. So, you know, um, I only mentioned a few of the groups, but you're absolutely right. There's, you know, there's access issues beyond, you know, um, the, the people like you mentioned who, um, you know, may or may not be able to be traceable or accountable for their second shot, which, you know, what that does is it, you know, it, it uses up a dose and it only gives about you know, 53% uh, effectiveness for a few months um and uh so it's not you know i mean it's just kind of a it, it's a, yeah i mean you, we could go into the challenges of that or just you know multi-tiered there sure. so you you've said you've heard from some experts this week on on how this will roll out are, are you hearing much about when we might see the societal effects of the immunizations you know beyond just individuals who might be immune but when when kind of the the presence of the vaccine in the in the world will will start slowing the spread i mean i've heard you know there's people that are you know in the valley that i talked to some doctors there that are hopeful that it'll be in the first part of the year but the but the generally the general consensus and that includes you know um, a bunch of the experts I was on a call with earlier this week that I mentioned, the CDC and FDA and American Medical Association and those types of people who are saying later into 2021, summer, you know, fall, um, you know, maybe those are conservative estimates and they're talking about, you know, the whole, the big, you know, the idea of herd immunity, you know, enough people being inoculated to, to slow it down and get life back to normal being, you know, upwards of 70% uh, by some estimates. Um so, I, I mean, you know, the average of all those guesses, really kind of what they are is summer, you know, later into 2021. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. That's, that's how everybody ends their answer to that question is, but we'll see. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Karen, one, one more question. Um, I'm looking at our coronavirus tracker that we have on our website, um, you know, the, the various numbers, just aside from the vaccine, how the virus is going right now. You know, I see hospitalizations continue to tick up. The The crowdedness of the hospitals, our, our, our map that kind of shows by region how occupied the hospital beds are, you know, we're looking at a lot of kind of dark numbers suggesting not a ton of occupancy. And then, but the actual confirmed cases has 
the seven-day average has ticked down slightly in the last few days. What are you hearing just about what the latest signs are of the virus? Um, what kind of level of concern are we in terms of our capacity to handle things in the short term? Um, I don't think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of optimism that it's going to get any better. Um, I think there's some concern about you know the two or three weeks after Christmas, just like they're what we're seeing the two or three weeks after Thanksgiving. I think the general pattern is you know uh, spiking cases leads to a spike in deaths um, uh, a few weeks later, but that was you know those those numbers kind of shift um, a little bit too. Um, so. I, I mean, the short, simple answer to that is the message I'm hearing is is um, buckle down. You know, it's going to be a bumpy ride for a while longer. All right. Okay, we'll, we'll get back to it. But first, a message from our sponsors. Texas Farm Bureau. Get the latest in farm and ranch news, wildlife, and a recap of the day's markets on Texas Ag Today, the only daily news podcast in Texas. More at texasfarmbureau.org slash radio. And... Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Okay, well, the other big notable event that happened on Monday was the electoral college vote that happened across the country. Of course, no big surprise, at least to people who believed the election results in November, that uh, Joe Biden received the majority of the votes and was kind of more affirmed as president-elect. Alex, um, we asked you uh, to watch the vote in Texas, and I told you, oh, this will be an easy thing, and you can write a couple paragraphs, and then we'll move on. Didn't quite turn out that way. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw in the, the Texas Electoral College vote on, on Monday? Yeah, so everything started out pretty tame. You know, I think in 2016, I read that it had uh, – the 38 electors in our state took like three hours to appoint a chair and a secretary, which is a pretty, you know, ceremonial title. Doesn't really mean too much, at least to my knowledge. Um, you know, that process was sped up a lot in 2020. I think it took like an hour to get past everything in Texas, as you mentioned, delivered its 38 electors to um, Donald Trump. And, you know, I thought we were all going to gavel out. And then, of course, the electors were like, oh, wait, we have one more. We have a resolution we want to pass. And the resolution that they passed 34 to 4 um, will have no impact on the results overall. But it asked um, four states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, who at the time had already cast um, all their electoral votes to Biden to basically um, have their legislatures appoint new electors. And the thought would be that those those Republican legislatures would pick all Republican electors and then give the election to Trump. Um, so like you mentioned, I mean, this doesn't have really any impact on um, anything going to Biden. I think shortly after Texas electors voted on this, uh, California cast its 55 votes for Biden and pushed him over the 270 number needed. But, you know, I talked to the Secretary of State shortly after this resolution was passed. They had no idea this was coming. I think it's largely out of their hands once the electors um, select their chair and it's sort of their process from there. But, you know, this is something that I think the president seemed to support um, from his tweet last night that I was a little bit confused on. Um, and it's something that, you know, definitely got the attention of people across the nation. 
Yeah, we should note that that tweet in which he retweeted you, which um, I'm sure did great things for your uh, Twitter feed. You know, when know, the president with 88 million followers I'm, uh, sets off. New friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, I mean, the, the, the message seemed to me to be, uh, look, this is another step. You know, the media calls it. We hear, you know, well, the media doesn't declare who the winner is. The Electoral College declares the winner. The Electoral College has now spoken. But the sign I get from, from the action in Austin and, you know, the president's response to it is that we're not, we're not moving on from this anytime, anytime soon. I can't wait to tell these guys about Santa Claus. Uh, (laughs) You know, this is just, you know, it it gets to a point of denial. And when you've got, you know, the leaders of the conservative party, Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, people like that saying, look, Biden's the next president. Let's move on. I think we're in the end of this thing. On the other hand, we've got five more weeks of President Trump's administration. And, you know, there are as long as there are steps left in this process, I think there are places where they're going to try to um, assert their view of this thing and, and try to take it away. The, you know, this is you know their chances are dwindling, but they've still got chances and they've still got plenty of opportunity to make noise. I would be surprised if they didn't take it. Sure, and we've got uh, a tracker on our website, basically keeping track of the Texas delegation in Congress and and what they've said on this. Um, and you know, there's still more than a dozen Republicans who um, in Congress from Texas who have not, you know, made any kind of a public acknowledgement that that Biden is the winner. You the the actions of the Electoral College on Monday moved the needle a little bit. We had uh, Ted Cruz not necessarily acknowledging it, but basically saying uh, Biden and Harris are on a path to becoming the next president and the vice president. We had a couple lawmakers, including Dan Crenshaw, um, who we sent a message to saying, you know, do you acknowledge Joe Biden as um, president-elect? And the response was one word, yes. But, um, you know, there's still uh, lawmakers who who are just not answering the question, you know, and some of them and it's not just kind of the um, Louis Gohmert's of the delegation too. you know, you see people like uh, Michael McCall, a a prominent member. You you see Bill Flores, who, uh, you know, is pretty aligned with House leadership and, and also not running for or did not run for reelection and doesn't really have to worry too much about his campaign. And uh uh, uh, you know, has has cast a lot of doubt and signed on to the Texas Attorney General's lawsuit, saying, um, you know, trying to overturn these results. I mean, eventually Biden's going to be inaugurated, though. Uh, I mean, what do we think about how how these lawmakers will handle a time when you know Joe Biden is in the White House? Well, January twenty second, Trump's out of the White House. Biden's in the White House. Um, and they've got to figure out, all of these people who have been talking about this, how they're going to conduct themselves and their politics as you go forward with the four years of the Biden administration. You know, Trump won't be there, at least in office, to be a big, scary thing anymore. And, but at the same time, they're, they're thinking about Trump's 74 million voters and whether stepping across the line that they're not stepping across yet, acknowledging Biden or having to forfend, you know, um, cooperating with Biden, 
will tick those people off, and that might hurt them in 2022 or 2024 or wherever their ambitions want to take them. I'm very curious to see how this winds out and whether this is really just a Trump's looming shadow is keeping these people frozen or whether this is really where they are. They are representative, though, of, of you know those 74 million people. And I think to some extent, to the extent that they are in doubt about this or confused about this, reflects where a lot of the public is. Sure. Alex, do you think that there's a political cost to this? Or by 2022, will we have all kind of forgotten about it and be, be worried about whatever new scandal or outrage there is that's going on in the world? I think that's something that we're still looking at. Of course, with Trump still in the White House, there's the question of whether Republican lawmakers are going to continue to stand by him or if they're going to pave their own way and really acknowledge, you know, hey, your time is up. Let's move, let's as a party move on. Um, and I think that's something that we're looking at, uh, you know, in the next legislative session, what Republican lawmakers are going to do in terms of, you know, voter fraud legislation and other things that Trump has pushed. So I think we're going to keep seeing in the future whether the Republican Party is still Trump's party or not. Of course, you know, Ted Cruz, who's being floated as a potential name for 2024, he's very close, still allied with Trump. Um, so I think it still uh, remains to be seen whether this will be a big conversation dominating the political world in the next few election cycles. Sure. And we, I mean, we don't even know there might be a, another presidential candidate Trump cycle, you know, in 2024. So we'll see. I mean, one other bit of news that uh, grabbed my eye around this uh, this week was yesterday's arrest of a former Houston police captain who was working with a conservative activist donor Stephen Hotze out of, of Houston to investigate allegations of voter fraud before the election. Hotze filed a lawsuit, or he filed multiple lawsuits um, against Harris County and various other places during the, or in the run-up to the 2020 election, um, alleging concerns about voter fraud and uh, Governor Greg Abbott's uh, changes to the voting rules and certain things like that. Uh, apparently, he also hired 20 investigators to look into claims of fraudulent ballots in Harris County. One of those investigators, the former police captain, um, was following a van that he thought had ballots, you know, fake ballots or illegal ballots in it, and uh, basically rammed him with his car. And then when the man pulled over, held him at gunpoint and essentially tried to conduct a citizen's arrest. Um, they searched the van and found uh, air conditioning parts and some tools. <laughs> no, uh, no ballots. You know, Ross. I mean, Hotze is kind of a a fringe figure on the Republican Party. He is definitely has his supporters and has influenced things in the past, but um, has also had his kind of public spats with Greg Abbott in, in recent times. Um, what was your reaction when when you saw this story? Well, I, you know, I'm a little bit on Hotsey's side of this. I mean, I don't think that he sent this guy out to ram a car and, you know, <laughs> scare the devil out of a, <clears throat> pardon, scare the devil out of an air conditioning repairman. Uh, although I've had uh, moments when I really wanted an air conditioning repairman and, you know, might ram a car. <laughs> Who knows, you know. Um, but, um, you know, that this guy was tied to him, that he, you know, that he hired investigators. All the steps of this sort of make sense until they don't, right? It's like, I want to prove that there's fraud. I have the money to do this. I'm going to hire some investigators to do it. Yeah, some of them are former cops. Those guys know what they're doing. 
all those steps make sense, and then this thing goes crazy. Um, I think Hotzi's people pretty quickly disowned this, um, but you know, it, it it's just another example of the level of crazy around this election. That you know, all of these things going on. You know, people are really seem really desperate to prove there was something wrong with this election, and that the results are counterfeit, and that the president deserves another four years. And like I said earlier, I think you know this is this is in its last stages. We're circling the drain now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this he rammed him with his car. He held a gun on him and forced him to the ground. I mean, that is motivation. You know, that is that is a that's a. I mean, that, you know, I mean that's. And I, and I think they said they paid him. You know, in the story that they, you know, they they. I think Jared, you had mentioned that they had disavowed him, and I think Philly mm-hmm. attorney had said that it was um, they were aware of his arrest, but they hadn't seen their, his side of the story yet. Uh, is where he went with that comment. So I'm, I'm interested in that story too. Um, yep. Yeah, he he got paid a lot of money for this too, uh, according to the, the affidavit. So um, definitely kind of alarming, an alarming um, uh, uh, trend going on, whether or not it's circling the drain. Um, one thing that is circling the drain is this podcast, and I think we should just cut it off after I accidentally hung up on our call. So with that, I will say thank you to Ross, Karen, and Alex, and our producer, Michael Ray. Thank you to our sponsors, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>